Right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Tuesday, a Thursday morning show for you. We start today live in BC's Peace River country and check in with Liberal MLA Mike Bernier. He is the former Education Minister of BC, and he posted on social media on Sunday that he and his family had all come down with COVID-19. And Mike Bernier joins me now from his home in Dawson Creek, where he and his family are isolating and recovering. And I'm grateful he could join me. Mike Bernier, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, good morning. My pleasure. Okay, Mike, I'm sorry to hear that you and your family uh, got hit with this virus. So let me just start by saying first, I hope for a full full and complete recovery for you and your family, Thank of you. course. How are you and your family doing right now? Oh, we're doing, actually, we're doing a lot better. It's uh, about day about day 10 for myself uh, for symptoms now, and uh, I believe we're all, we're all on the mend. Uh, you know, and it really makes me... Uh, think of all the other people in the province right now who are who are going through this uh, and challenged uh, challenged times for sure. And you know everybody has different symptoms and different uh, different ways they've dealt with this. But uh, you know it just makes me feel about some of the people who have had it so much harder and who have even lost loved ones. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to hear that you and your family are feeling better. How did uh, when did you first uh, all come down with this? Well, it would have been early uh, mid last week, and so it was. Uh, you know, one of those things with Dawson Creek, where I live, being at the time one of the hot spots. So we were trying to make sure that we, as we have all along, followed all of the protocols as best we can. And uh, you know, you just—it's just one of those things. You just you try to follow all the all the rules, uh, all the safety measures, and it and it still happens. So it just goes to show that uh, you know we all need to be uh, be safe out there. Right. So it's you and your wife and your daughter. I understand. Got sick. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and uh, you know, and, and so obviously everybody's doing uh, a lot better right now, and uh, you know, that's one of the things I focused on. Yeah. Any any idea how you guys got this? Where it came from? No, and that's and that's the thing. You know, it's uh, you know, you start trying to trace your tracks, and it's just so hard to determine exactly. Uh, where it came from. I fly back and forth uh, to Victoria for a session. Uh, you just you just never know. And, you know, that's why, again, it's important just to always do what you can to be safe. Yeah, like who got it first? Like who got sick first? Yeah, yeah we don't know. Uh, yeah. You know, our symptoms all started showing up around the same time. And yeah. I guess at the uh, at the end of the day, you know, one of the things, it doesn't really matter, I guess, who, who got it first. It's, yeah. uh, you know, we just have to get through it. Right. What kind of symptoms do you... <clears throat> Did you have, or do you have? Oh, you know, all a little different for myself. It was uh, very congested, very sore, very tired, uh, hard to focus uh, at the beginning. Uh, you know, I do feel definitely uh, on the mend uh, now, but I'll tell you, at the very at the at the beginning, it was it was pretty rough. You know, you start realizing uh, uh, the muscles in your body you never thought you had when you can feel the pain in all of them. Wow. Okay. Speaking to Liberal MLA Mike uh, Bernier, recovering from COVID along with his family. How about your wife and daughter? How are they doing? What were their symptoms like? Oh, yeah. You know, they're doing. They're doing a lot better. You know, probably not going to get into too much detail with uh, with them. You know, try to keep a little sure. bit of it uh, private, Mike. But uh, you yeah. know, it's it's more more importantly, everybody's starting to feel better. Yeah. Okay. That's really good to hear. Now, you mentioned that you you frequently fly back and forth to Victoria for legislative sessions when the house is in session. So I know you were in Victoria like recently, just before you got sick. Is that right? Yeah. You know, sometimes things work out uh, for the good. Uh, last week, I did not go to session in Victoria. I worked um, remotely. 
because Dawson Creek was uh, such a hot spot, I thought, you know, I'm not going to take any chances and travel. Plus, I was registered to uh, finally get in for uh, my vaccine. So I chose to work from home last week. And uh, ironically, you know, that's when I uh, came down with my symptoms on the plus side. That also meant, though, that uh, during the contagious period, I was told I uh, did not have any impact on the legislative proceedings. So that's, that's a benefit to everyone there. Yeah, like when was the last time you were in Victoria? Well, that would be two weeks ago now. So it's, okay. uh, it, it is quite interesting, the process uh, that I've learned going through this as well. Uh, of course, if you're in contact with somebody who tests positive, they want you to isolate for 14 days to watch your symptoms. But once you do, and if you do test positive yourself, then it's only a 10-day window um, that you need to be uh, isolating. And, you know, only a couple of days prior to that, that they were worried about when I was contagious. So. Okay. Does that therefore mean that no other MLAs, members of the legislature, had to go into isolation after you tested yeah, positive? That's correct. Yeah. Well, I made yeah. sure I followed all the protocols. And as soon as I was, uh, it was notified that I was positive, um, you know, I notified the Legislative Assembly right away, worked with uh, BC Centre for Disease Control, making sure that we followed all of the proper notifications. And fortunately, it did not uh, have in that window of notification, we weren't worried about uh, for myself, uh, for anybody in the legislature, which was good news. Yeah. And um, what, when you tested positive, did you get one of the variants of COVID or do you know? No, they didn't. They didn't tell me, nor, nor did I yeah. ask for that matter. Uh, yeah. They... Uh, they just notified me that I had tested positive and had to start following all of the all of the, the rules of self-isolation, which uh, we're making sure we do. Yeah, so I guess what, the three of you just don't leave the house now? Yeah, it's it's uh, uh, it's been an interesting time catching up huh. uh, as much as I can working remotely. Um, you know, looking forward to getting back, back to work, though. I mean, government doesn't stop. There's a lot going on, and especially... Uh, being part of the opposition, uh, there's uh, a lot of opportunity for us right now where we need to be out uh, holding government to account. So looking forward to getting back face-to-face, whites of the eyes, as they say, back in Victoria. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned that in Dawson Creek, where you live, that that had been a, a COVID hotspot uh, recently. Like, how, how bad was it in Dawson Creek, and r- what's it like there right now in terms of, like, the caseload up there? Yeah, it seems to be actually getting better. Uh, we're, I guess one of the benefits, if you can say it that way, of uh, of so many people contracting COVID in the area that it, it expedited the, uh, the uh, response in the area for getting the vaccine. And we've had a great uh, uptake uh, for people getting the vaccine. Uh, so that's been a positive note uh, for the area. And, you know, hopefully we can get through this on the other side. Right. Like speaking of the vaccine, you had received the vaccine earlier, right? Yeah, it was. <coughs> excuse me. It was one of those, um, I guess, interesting timings. Uh, I didn't go to Victoria last week, so I could stay home and make sure I got my vaccine. And about two, three hours after I received the vaccine is when I started uh, getting symptoms uh, of of COVID. And so at first I thought maybe it was just a slight reaction to the vaccine. Uh, but as the symptoms got worse, I went and got checked. And sure enough, uh, I actually did have uh, tested positive wow. for COVID. So they figured that, you know, this, it was underlying. It was just, you know, bad timing in, in the way. But at the same time, I mean, uh, you know, we want to make sure we're encouraging everyone. If I had only had my vaccine, you know, a week or two earlier, yeah. um, 
you know, if it might have been a different story. Right. And just lastly, right now in the province, it, it's reassuring to see the caseload starting to come down a little bit. There's more and more people getting vaccinated every single day. But, you know, you're proof of how this thing can sneak up on you um, and, mm-hmm. and, and wallop you and your family, even when you are following the, the protocols. What, what is your message, Mike, to people listening out there about, you know, just keeping your guard up right now? Yeah, I mean, we need to all do that. We need to be following uh, all the rules. You know, we've been making sure as a BC Liberal caucus that we're not politicizing this in any way. We're working with government of making sure we get that message out there. Let's let's stay safe. Uh, everybody, please consider getting uh, the vaccine. We need to get to a point where uh, we can get uh, not only the population safe, most importantly, but let's get our let's get our country and let's get our province back open. Let's get people back working and start rebuilding. Mike Bernier, thanks a lot for taking the time to speak to me today, and I hope for a full recovery for you and your family very quickly. Appreciate that, Mike, and just hope everybody else stays safe as well. Thank you so much. All right, welcome back. We heard my conversation there with Liberal MLA Mike Bernier is speaking to us from his home in Dawson Creek, where he and his family are recovering after they all came down with COVID-19. He got, he started feeling sick, he said, the same day he got the COVID-19 vaccine. I thought that maybe it was initially a reaction to the shot, uh, then started to feel progressively worse and tested positive for COVID-19, as did his family. You heard him describe some of his symptoms there, including a lot of body aches and pains. He said his whole body was feeling uh, really, really painful and sore all through his body. He and his family are doing a lot better. Let's check in with Jason Tetro now. He's a microbiologist. He's the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Jason. Hey there. Does that sound like some of the typical symptoms there? I mean, this can. Uh, it sounds like this virus can really vary from person to person in terms of the type of symptoms they experience. Yeah, absolutely. And it has to do with the fact that uh, every one of us has a unique immune system. And so even within a family, you may have, uh, you know, four or five completely different immune system responses, and therefore people are going to react differently. But what I can tell you is that we've seen some research coming out in the last uh, few weeks where we now know what's happening in the first two to three days of an infection. And you will not feel symptoms at least until day three to day four, based on how much virus is actually made while it's inside of you. So yeah, it really was bad timing for it for the member. Okay, that's interesting. And you heard him describe there how he started feeling symptoms on the same day mm-hmm. he got the vaccine. And at first he thought it was a reaction to the vaccine. Turned out he had COVID. He was, He would have been exposed, uh, what, a few days before he received the shot, it sounds like. Yeah, at least four days before, because it takes three days to get to a point. Then your immune system has to come and get, uh, and that's another 18 hours. I mean, we can pretty much put a timeline to it now that we've, you know, done the studying. Right. And what about the vaccine in terms of its effectiveness and how long does it take to kick in? Because, you know, it's pretty, what a drag to get the vaccine and then still get sick anyway. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, first off, before we even talk about the vaccine, let me just yeah. say that uh, you have two layers of immune response. One is antibodies, which everybody talks about. The other is T cells, which nobody talks about. The T cells, even if you've never been exposed to this particular virus, may actually make it a mild infection. So leave it there. Now we go to the vaccine. What the vaccine does is it tells your immune system, hey, look, we've got something new for you to look at. But that actually is going to take 15 to 28 days, depending on your age and how well your immune system reacts, before you get a nice, robust response to be able to prevent symptoms altogether. And even then, it's only about 80% effective. 
Right. And he also described how they had been following all the health health and safety protocols, but they still came down with it. So how easy is it to, to get this thing even like it can sneak up on you unawares? You might think you're safe, but you can still you can still catch it. Yeah. And one of the big concerns is that when we talk about following all the uh, restrictions and all the uh, ABCs, as I call them, you know, protecting your airway, keeping your bubbles, knowing your contacts. One of the big problems is sometimes that's almost impossible to do because you may not necessarily comply properly or you might be around people who are not complying. Um, Even just something as simple as, you know, your mask falling off your nose completely inadvertently and you're just kind of walking around with a naked nose for a little while, that might be able to do it. Now, I'm not saying any of that actually happened. It's, It's very difficult to be able to identify. But these are just things we should be aware of as we're going through our daily activities. Yeah, what about the uh, the long hauler phenomenon that we hear about with some people who, who mm-hmm. get it and then they hope they're going to recover, go through maybe a couple of week period when they're feeling sick and then get 100% better. But for some people, the symptoms continue to linger. Are we learning more about that, like what's causing that? Yeah, so that thing I talked about, the T-cell response earlier, um, what happens is if it works, you clear the virus probably within about 10 days. That's why you have to be in isolation for like 10 days. But if it doesn't, for whatever reasons, then it actually what we call exhausts the T-cell pool. And therefore, you don't have the ability to fight to the point where you're going to win, all you can do is basically have um, what essentially is like a cold war inside of your body, and you end up feeling these long-term symptoms as a result. And depending on where that happens, it could be anything from just fatigue, headaches, to um, neurological conditions, and and maybe even heart and, and kidney problems. Speaking to Jason Tetro, Jason's a microbiologist. He specializes in studying emerging pathogens like COVID-19. The Super Awesome Science Show is his, uh, is his great podcast. Uh, Jason, it's been an interesting week here on the vaccine front, especially after that National Advisory Committee earlier this week mm-hmm. had come out and surprisingly, uh, in, in my view, sort of said that the, uh, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were the preferred vaccines in Canada, suggested maybe some people might want to wait if they have an opportunity to get that vaccine instead of something like AstraZeneca. What did you think of that? Do you think that did that surprise you at all to hear that? Well, it's funny. It, it What I do when I talk with you is I talk in a way that is science translation or knowledge translation. When I'm talking to my academic colleagues, I speak academic. What's happening is that the NASI people, the National Advisory Committee, are talking academically to the public. And unfortunately, what's happening is that the messaging is getting all mixed up. Because what may be a 1 in 250,000 chance of a problem all of a sudden becomes the only thing everybody's talking about. And everybody is forgetting yeah. the fact that that other 259 or 49999 is actually going to be able to save lives. And so right. I wish that people who speak academically would stay inside academically and leave it up to the knowledge translators and knowledge brokers like myself. Jason, it's always great to have you on today. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. Take care. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the surging housing market now and the affordability crisis in our region, especially for young people priced out of this market. Housing prices across Canada going through the stratosphere again. Across the country, housing sale prices up over 20%. Bidding wars are back as homes routinely sell over asking price. Here in Metro Vancouver, an already distorted market getting even worse, especially for young people hoping to get into a first home. Are some millennials 
just giving up. Check out these numbers now from Statistics Canada. In the third quarter of 2020, Canada saw net migration go negative for the first time since 1971. That means more people are leaving the country than coming into the country. Now, a lot of that, obviously, because of COVID border restrictions. But there's also a lot of evidence that young people in particular are giving up and leaving some of the metro regions of Canada, largely because of housing prices. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Dylan Kruger. He is a city councillor in Delta. In the last election, he was the youngest ever councillor elected there in Delta at age 23. Delta, I think it was, Dylan, how old were you when you were elected? I was 23 at the time, 23. 25 now. Very nice. Congratulations. It's nice to see young young people getting involved in uh, local politics. Thanks, uh, d- I appreciate it. Dylan, let's talk about this housing market. Like when you, you're a young guy, Young family, when you talk to other young people, what do they tell you about this housing market in Metro Vancouver? It's a joke, Mike. People have uh, given up, and I, it's, it's heartbreaking. I'm, I'm getting tired of it. Uh, every month, it seems like I have more friends and people who I don't know who are reaching out to me who said that they, they grew up in the community. They've done all the right things, everything they were told to do. They've gone out, gotten a degree, gotten educated. Uh, they're great-paying jobs. They're starting families. They're at the point in their lives where they, they'd like to settle down and, and raise their families in the same communities that they grew up in. And it's just not feasible because the cost of housing has risen so much higher than the cost of, of wages over the last 20 years. Um, so, Mike, it's, it's a totally rigged game. Uh, and millennials who have done the right thing uh, are getting out of Dodge. Yeah, getting out of Dodge. Like, what, Do you hear people saying that they're just throwing their hands up and saying, you know what? I'm moving somewhere else where I can afford to buy a place? Yeah, for those who who have still held on to the dream of buying, if that's important to them, they're going to the island. Uh, some folks yeah. who've gone to Prince George, others who have left BC altogether. Those who are staying have realized that, that the dream of home ownership is something that they'll never attain, and they'll be renting for the rest of their lives. And that's what you have to do. You have to give up a lot, and you have to give up a lot of space um, if you want to stay even remotely close to Vancouver these days. Yeah, what do you think is driving it? Well, I mean, number one, Vancouver has always been an incredibly uh, popular destination. We're surrounded by water and oceans, which also lies a problem. There is a, there is a lack of land here. We are land uh, poor. Uh, we've got the U.S. border as well to the south. We've got the rest of the open spaces protected by the agricultural land reserves. So the only options to build new housing is to densify our existing areas. But because yeah. of this very North American notion of exclusionary zoning, We've turned the vast majority of our communities into time capsules where as soon as the, the ink is dried on the, uh, on the title for the first redevelopment, it's done. And it's a museum to whatever uh, style of housing was built at that time. And in the vast majority of our region, that means large lots with single detached homes, no ability to subdivide, no ability to add coach houses, basement suites, um, or other secondary uh, gentle densification options that would at least give people half a chance to stay in the region. Yeah, I think you've really put your finger on something here. I want to drill down on that with you for sure. Let me let me ask you quickly, though. Um, the, the pandemic right now, I mean, so many more people are working from home. you got the social distancing requirements, especially, you know, you got young people staying home, saving money. Interest rates are like rock bottom, right? It's so easy to borrow money cheaply. Does that contribute to a run on housing, too? Sure. Um, it's just funny, though, how the conversations change, right? Five years ago in 2016, this, this was a really hot conversation, and we, we, it, it didn't 
seem to be in the media narrative anything that we were doing here ourselves. The, the, the notion that it could be locally fed demand didn't really come into play. We, we blamed foreign buyers and casinos and immigration and money laundering. And all that's gone now. Uh, we've, we've taxed the, the hell out of the foreign buyer situation. The uh, m- money laundering inquiry is well underway. Christy Clark's been out of office for five years. Um, and the immigration has been cut in half. Uh, so we have nowhere to go but actually say, hey, maybe we haven't actually been building enough supply uh, to meet the pent-up demand that is coming to a head now for all the reasons that you just described. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of government intervention to try and moderate this market and make it more affordable. And I don't know, it just doesn't seem to be, it seems to be going, still going in the other direction. My guest is Dylan Kruger. He is a young city councillor in Delta. We're talking about an unaffordable housing market, especially for young people. So let's talk about that density issue that you brought up. So you think that one of the solutions here, we got to build more stuff for people to buy and live in, right? Yeah, well, it's funny. We talk about the market, but it's not really a free market. It's uh, the vast majority of housing types are illegal in most parts of the region. And if you talk to anybody who's ever, you know, tried to take on the risk to build something going into your local city hall, well, good luck. I hope you have five years of your life and a whole bunch of expendable income to wait uh, as you try to go through the massive red tape. That's the bureaucratic nightmare of the approval process. You can buy right in most parts of the city, build a you know, 5,000 square foot mansion pretty much. Uh, and yet you have to go through an extremely onerous public hearing, engagement and rezoning process to build smaller units, again, to build coach houses, to build modest apartments. It is so prohibitive. Um, yeah. And and it's, it's really beneficial if you ha- happen to be somebody who got into the market and 40 years ago, but it's really sure. discouraging to people that are trying to get in right now. Yeah. Does that include in Delta where you're a counselor? Yeah, in Delta as well. In Delta, 70% plus of our land is single detached homes. And it's it's like clawing, right? It's, it's one project at a time, and we put people through so many hoops. And it's just funny that the conversations that we have, right? We, you know, we have conversations at the council table in Delta about, quote, the, the rampant pace of growth, which is just not true. Uh, the growth in Delta actually lags considerably behind uh, the growth that the rest of Metro Vancouver has had. So Delta in particular is going to come to a head as uh, we continue to have an aging population and we have the hollowing out or the brain drain of, of younger families and working age people. Who are the people who are, who are going to be running our shops and services in our community as our dependency ratio gets higher in the years ahead? We're going to be coming. It's a housing crisis right now, but it'll get a whole heck of a lot worse if we don't start to get serious about building new supply. Okay, when you say that the market is rigged against millennials, is that what you're talking about? Are you talking about like the some of the restrictive building practices? Is that is that why it's rigged? Well, that's that in my opinion is 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 the the number one issue when it comes to housing. And again, we we love to talk about the demand side, but we've never had a truly free market uh, in our city or in most North American cities. Because we put our, we turn our communities into museums. We we don't allow for thousands of years. Communities were allowed to naturally evolve as the needs of the community changed. Um, larger lots got consolidated into smaller ones, and you were able to build, uh, you know, modest apartments and townhouses and row houses. There was a variety, yeah. recognizing that different people have different housing needs. But we don't do that, and it's it's so, it's it's just so prohibitive. Uh, like I mentioned, the red tape, the rezoning. Um, and and the, the notion that the already housed, those who have the privilege of living in our communities, seem to have veto power 
on the, the living choices of those who are unhoused or underhoused, which is predominantly the okay. case for millennials in this region. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about an overheated housing market. My guest is Dylan Kruger. He's a 25-year-old city councillor in Delta. He thinks the market is rigged against millennials. Lots of phone calls. Let's go right to them. Andrew in Coquitlam. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Hi, go ahead. I um, just want to uh, tell you, like, I've been uh, living in the Vancouver area for a good 23 years, maybe 24 years. And when uh, we moved here, it was not affordable even back then. It was more affordable 25 years ago in Calgary, more affordable in Saskatoon. Now it's the same thing. It's just more unaffordable now. And uh, when young people want to get into housing, no, they cannot afford a house. But you can afford uh, one bedroom maybe, build some equity, get some uh, move to two bedroom. Maybe move to townhouse, and when when you're in your forties, get a house. You know. Okay, 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 Dylan. What do you? Okay, thanks for the call, Dylan. What do you think about that? Like, I, I often hear people saying, "Well, I don't know. Maybe young people should should stop whining. Like, maybe start off in a condo, start small in a starter home. Maybe be willing to move out to the burbs. You know, lower your expectations. What do you say to that? Yeah, that's the dream. Climb the the property ladder. That's the yeah. formula that we were taught, um, that our parents used. It's, it, sure. The formula is broken, though. It doesn't work anymore. The, the costs of even get, getting on to that first rung in the ladder have become prohibitive, even for people who are, uh, you know, two-income families making six figures. It's just, it's, it's a moving target. You think you've scrimped and saved enough, and then a year like this happens, and the cost goes up 20% again, and you're back down where you started. So yeah. I totally agree. That's the dream. It's just how you get onto that first rung of the ladder. Let's go to Ryan on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Ryan. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking the call. I, uh, live, I'm, I'm in my early 40s. I live in Vancouver. I live in a rented house. I make six figures. I'm the landlord of the entire house where I have to sublet the basement suite to someone else. Um, the, the house next door was under construction for like 40 years. I had an outhouse in my yard for most of it. Uh, it's, uh, when I heard Gregor Robertson do his exit interview with Linda, and say gloat about the GDP of Vancouver propping up the rest of the country, which is almost all from real estate. It was clear to me that politicians, and you can see it how they've handled all these other issues, the, the politicians in this city just don't care about anyone but the wealthy and the people that share the same interests as them. And we've had a parade of lazy and net politicians through City Hall for a decade, and nothing's going to change. I can't what wait I'm in a position to leave. What do you think should be done? They should focus on doing things that need to, that they need to do to make the market more affordable, like this zoning, like this density, like controlling the homeless problems also. like They just seem to have thrown their hands up in the air, and they're working on bike lanes and green initiatives. It's ridiculous. They're pathetic. It's a joke. Okay, Ryan, thanks for the call. Well, he touched on the density and the zoning issue there, Dylan, that I know is high priority for you. But in your experience, I mean, does it get down to a NIMBY thing? Like you mentioned that... You know, when, if someone's already living in a detached home, they don't want to see, like, row houses across the street from them, right? Well, yeah, and that's where, at a certain point, you need, to the caller's point, courageous politicians to say yes to, to new housing and to look at yeah. the bigger picture. And I also think there's a role for the provincial and federal governments. We give billions of dollars in infrastructure grants to cities. Look at the amount of money that's going in to build the new Broadway subway line. There needs to be some kind of guarantee that uh, municipalities are going to meet some sort of new housing unit targets. If the feds and the province are going to spend billions mm. of dollars putting sky trains in predominantly single-family neighborhoods, I mean, give me a break. 
Yeah, Natasha on the line in Richmond. Hi. Yes, hi. Um, agreed with the last caller completely about the politicians. However, um, I think this is just not a millennial issue. Even the people who have houses right now, the government seems to think that um, are not letting us stay in our houses because it's gone so high. I believe it's the casinos that have created this market and real estate market that has been hyped up, monies that we don't know where it's coming from. And I think the mayors have completely shut their eyes to this, especially the one in Richmond. And also the other thing is BC assessment. All the properties that are being built, when I have to pay my property taxes, it's based on all the ones that are comparable around me. Four million, five million dollar homes. Where is the where is the fairness in this? Okay, Natasha, thank you for the call. Okay, well, Councillor, she mentioned uh, casinos. We've heard a lot about money laundering, offshore offshore money distorting the market, foreign buyers. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think the measures government's already taken has largely curbed that, or is it still going on? Well, look, my casinos have been closed for a year <laughs> yeah if we if we want a great social experiment on what closing the casinos will do we have it i don't think it's yeah. helped when you look at foreign buyers it, it's an element sure i think the last stats i saw it's maybe three percent of the market so yeah. i think it's it's an overblown scapegoat to be honest and we we seem to love again to blame everyone except for ourselves except for the obvious answer that maybe we haven't built enough yeah. housing in this region to, yeah. to meet the demand yeah, right. Derek on the line in Victoria. Hi, Derek. Oh, yeah, two things, if I may, Mike. Uh, Dylan, sure. please stay in uh, politics. Your clarity and your uh, uh, is just really refreshing from coming from somebody of your age. So please stay. I, I agree. Um, and, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and my comment is I'm a baby boomer. I've got two millennials. I helped them get into a condo. But you know what? Hang in there for 20 years. Most of us boomers will be gone. Uh, my kids will be getting a nice inheritance, and there'll be lots of houses to choose from. I think it's going to change, but it's going to take a long time. Okay, anyway, Derek. Th- okay. Thank you, Derek, for the call. Counselor. Yeah, I, I, th- thanks. That, that means a lot, and I, I totally agree that you know we need to ensure that our elected officials are representative of the makeup of our communities. Millennials are now the largest voting bloc in Canada. We're the largest segment of the workforce, the largest segment that's paying taxes, we're not uh, 20-year-olds buying lattes anymore. The oldest uh, millennials are, are, you know, close to 45 now. So I think I, I appreciate the sentiment, and I'd love to see more young people get elected into office. And uh, very true about the, the, the generational uh, transfer of wealth. I think that's really the only way mm. the younger people are getting in these days is if you're, you're fortunate enough to have parents or, or relatives who are able to, to help you out. But isn't it sad uh, that that's what we need to do and i feel for those who who, who aren't fortunate enough uh, yeah. to have that counselor thank you for coming on the show today i appreciate it a lot mike thanks for the time all right welcome back to the show hockey is to canada what baseball is to the united states it's our pastime we proudly call it our game but are canadians being honest about the state of the game our show contributor john jang now examines the issues surrounding hockey john Good morning, Mike. A new survey has found that many Canadians believe hockey culture has major fundamental issues now resulting in misogyny, racism, and a lack of inclusion. This survey, conducted by the Angus Reid Institute, polled individuals who have connections to hockey at recreational levels, meaning this isn't necessarily a shot against the NHL. Rather, it's a statement about the health of the game. Shachi Curl joined the Linda Steele Show yesterday to talk about the findings. 
So we went and talked to those people, Linda. We talked to Canadians who have that personal proximity to that lived experience with rink life. And what they told us is that they are seeing some some problems with hockey culture. Indeed, we found that uh, more than half of people who either played when they were younger or were involved as a coach or a manager or a referee, about half, just over half of them say that they do perceive uh, problems with young hockey players behaving disrespectfully towards women and girls. Um, also, more than half of this group say that racism is a problem within uh, youth and amateur level hockey. And they also perceive bullying to be a problem, whether it's players bullying kids outside of the rink or if we're dealing with coaches bullying players. So, you know, you have people who are very, very committed to the world of hockey who are also saying, look, we love the game, but it doesn't mean that we think that everything about the game is is wonderful or is lovable. Back in January of 2019, NBC commentator Pierre Maguire had this cringeworthy moment when he basically patronized Kendall Coyne Schofield, who was making her debut as a hockey analyst. For the record, Kendall Coyne Schofield is a two-time U.S. Olympian in ice hockey with a silver and gold medal, in addition to being one of the most accomplished players of all time. And here's how that went on live TV. Welcome back to Pittsburgh in the Steel City. In the Steel City, welcome to Kendall Coyne. What has your life been like since that All-Star weekend, Kendall? Up here, it's been overwhelming. It started on a red line at the SAP Center in San Jose, and it's taken me to a red line here at PPG Pages Arena in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's been exciting, it's overwhelming, and I'm so excited to join you here. So Tampa's going to be on your left, Pittsburgh's going to be on your right. What are you expecting out of this game? We're paying you to be an analyst, not to be a fan tonight. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to see Tampa start. They've been off for 10 days, haven't had a game. Pittsburgh, on the other hand, had a tough loss on Monday, got a little bit blown out of the water by New Jersey Devils, so I'm excited to see the start tonight. Let's have a blast. Johnny, back to you. Another major stat to point out from this study are the financial implications. Approximately 9 out of 10 Canadians in this study agreed that the sport was too expensive for low-income individuals. We know that the majority of new Canadian families, or immigrants, are almost always in the low-income bracket, which means despite Canada's diverse, multi-ethnic background, that's hardly represented in what we call Canada's pastime. And the lack of visible minorities at the grassroots level means a lack of representation at the top. In 2011, 93% of all NHL players identified as white. Compare that to the NBA here in 2020, only 17% of players identified as white. It all makes sense. Hockey sticks, skates, shoulder pads, helmets, you name it. Add it all up, you're already spending a thousand bucks before you even hit the ice. Whereas in basketball or in soccer, all you really need are the right pair of shoes and a ball. And if I'm being generous, assuming the right pair of shoes cost closer to $300, you're still looking at less than half the price needed in order to actually play a game of hockey. So yes, money does matter, and hockey is still likely the most expensive sport to play in 2021. It should be noted that this study did say good things about hockey. 93% of respondents said the sport provides a sense of identity and community, while 87% said it reinforces individual qualities like hard work and dedication. But clearly, there's a lot of work left to be done to make hockey accessible for everyone. Back to you, Mike. 
All right. Thank you for that report, John. And John Jang joins me now. This uh, survey is getting a lot of attention this week, John. I know you're a big hockey fan. I grew up in a, in a hockey family. Um, I was a terrible hockey player, the worst in my family. <laughs> my, my brothers were good, though. They were good hockey players, but I was, I was awful, terrible. But I uh, went to a lot of games. We were kind of part of the hockey, hockey culture, I guess, when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I grew up in a f- pretty ethnically diverse uh, neighborhood and city. And I remember that it was a fairly diverse group of kids who were playing hockey. But that's not maybe the experience across across the whole country. But do you? Th- I think it's an important issue to talk about. Do you think it's getting better? I mean, there there are initiatives out there to improve the diversity of the sport. Like I was looking at a great organization and website today called the Hockey Diversity Alliance, which has got yeah. in Canada, which has got like big corporate sponsors and stuff getting behind this. Yeah, absolutely. The HDA, the Hockey Diversity Alliance that you're alluding to, uh, that was created by current players that are still within the game right now. Players like Evander Kane from Vancouver, of course. Yeah. But it's, it was created out of a necessity because they realized there isn't a proper organization that represents them. Whereas if you are, say, a white hockey player, you have so much more opportunity, you have so much more representation. So they created the HDA in response to a lack of visible minorities playing the game and being able to be those idols for young Canadians growing up or just young hockey players around the world. Uh, I think there are steps to show that it's getting better. But then we look at the Jake Vertanen allegations here, Mike, over the past week or so, and we see that there are still problems existing within the game. Okay, and do you think like the diversity is on the road to improvement? It seems I, like I hope it is. It is. I hope yeah. it is. Yeah, I, I think it is. And obviously, the money will always be a main factor. I'm not sure how you can make hockey so cheap that everyone can play to the oh, point yeah. where it's ac- as accessible as hockey and uh, sorry, uh, basketball and soccer. But with that in mind, there are programs now that are available for families that might be low income to help purchase a lot of those equipment. Well, that's a really key point because hockey is an expensive sport, right? Like maybe the mo- one of the most expensive of all of them just because of the, the nature of the equipment that you need. Yes, exactly. And the hockey rink itself, you need to maintain that ice. And having a Zamboni, for example, it's not the cheapest thing around. So you have to, indeed, there are going to be costs that are just natural to the game itself. But that also means there's an issue for those that can't afford to play. Okay, John, thanks for that report. You got it. Thank you, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Buckle up. One of the fastest and quietest electric car races in the world. Heading back to Canada and right here to Vancouver after Vancouver City Council voted 9-1 to to bring the Formula E race circuit to the False Creek area of Vancouver. Set to start in July of 2022. Hopefully be the first of at least three Formula E races to come to Canada. This is super exciting, especially for race fans or people who remember the IndyCar races, the Molson Indy in Vancouver, which, of course, is no more controversial because of the noise and the streets shut down in the streets of Vancouver. I loved it. I thought it was a great event when it was in Vancouver. But now we've got Formula E to look forward to here now. Have a listen to this. This is Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby-Young. What's not to like? It's uh, it really is an electrifying opportunity, and it's, I, I know that's a pun, but because it's an electric uh, race, but it, it just checks all the boxes. And so, it's more than a race; it's a three part. So, it's a two day business conference. It's focused on sustainability, bringing leaders together to talk about and inspire the electrification of transportation. Um, there'll be two phenomenal and amazing concerts. Um, 
that people can enjoy with international acts. And then we will have sort of the penultimate, which is the one-day Formula E race taking place in Northeast Falls Creek. Okay, sounds like a perfect opportunity for Vancouver, and a lot of people are excited about it. Let's discuss now with my guest, Norris McDonald. Norris is a former uh, racer himself. He raced uh, super-modified cars. He is the editor emeritus of the wheels section of the Toronto Star. He was the first journalist inducted into the Canadian Motorsport Hall of Fame, which I think is pretty awesome. Norris, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, it's a pleasure, Mike. Hey, it's great to have you here. Okay, Formula E. Can you describe this? I know you've been to Formula E races, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, can you describe it for people who are wondering, like, what is this Formula E? How would you describe it? Well, listen, the the cars themselves look just like the uh, Formula One and the Indy cars that everybody's familiar with. Yeah. Very long and low to the ground. Uh, there's a, a halo protection over the cockpit for the drivers. Uh, essentially, the difference is that the uh, is that the motors are electric rather than internal combustion uh, or hybrid, as Formula One is. And um, the only difference is that where a NASCAR or an IndyCar or a Formula One race, you can hear the engines and they're pretty loud. Yeah. Uh, the Formula E engines are much quieter. You can still hear them. It's a bit of a misnomer to say that they are completely quiet. They yeah. give off a bit of a whine, but they certainly are not in any way as noisy as the racing cars we've all known to, uh, we all know and love. Okay, I'm a race fan. I, I watch uh, I watch the Formula One races now and then. I watch NASCAR. And, and like when you watch uh, the Formula One cars, I mean, these cars are going like over 200 miles an hour at times. Mm-hmm. How fast do these Formula E cars get up to? Well, the f- top speed of a Formula E car is about 280 kilometers an hour, which right. means they're not wasting any time getting around there. Yeah. The courses are slightly shorter than uh, a normal race course. Uh, and the reason for that is because the races are, themselves are about a half an hour long. They have to time them rather than uh, just go to the end. Because uh, if, uh, unfortunately, the, if there is one uh, negative to a Formula E classification, is that the cars run out of juice. And so it's two heats of a half hour each. Uh, and uh, they they should be able to hold on for that long. They naturally are working to improve these these motors so that they will be able to uh, go longer. But right now they have to be very careful that they don't inadvertently run out of uh, power before the end of the race. Okay, Norris, you are one of the greatest racing journalists here in Canada, and you've seen it all. You've been steeped in in these uh, racing events and the culture of racing for so long. Like, give me an honest answer here. Like, is this real racing? Like, electric, electric vehicles, electric race cars? Is this is this the real deal? Like, is it real? Is it real racing? Like, form like sort of like Formula One in the similar trust, class? Mike, trust me, this is real racing. Yeah. Uh, these cars get going like a bat out of hell. Uh, they get 250 kilowatts of power. Uh, they can accelerate from zero to 100 kilometers an hour in 2.8 seconds. And as I say, they got a top speed of 280 kilometers an hour, and they're motoring, and they're racing. Don't ever kid yourself. This is uh, as exciting 
and uh, in its own way and uh, as dangerous as any other mm. form of racing. I think the fans in Vancouver are really going to like it. And uh, I'll tell you, I hope to be able to get out there, though, because uh, I like the idea of this two days of, of discussion of sustainability. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, you've got a couple of big concerts coming, which, incidentally, Formula One has been doing for years, uh, you know, is combining uh, music with the racing. And uh, so I think you'll see a couple of big star concerts and, uh, and some interesting stuff to pay attention to. And then, of course, the climax will be the race. And I think that everybody will thoroughly enjoy itself. And you know something, Mike? I have mm. to say something else. Yeah. Listen, Vancouver is known across the country as the green, pro- as the green province. Right. This is the perfect place for Formula, uh, uh, formula Electric to be. And, and frankly, you guys can be the leader out there as the automotive industry transitions from internal combustion to uh, electric, because there's no doubt about it that that is the future of automotive, and it's the future of racing. Okay, I love it. I think it really is a good fit, and I'm excited about it, too. I think it's a pretty awesome thing that Vancouver's going for this, and I didn't know a whole lot about this Formula E circuit, but taking a look at some of the schedule on Norris, like, this is the real deal. Like, these guys race in, like, Rome and New York and, and, and Monaco and, mm-hmm. and London. I mean, this is the real deal. This is a real world-class racing circuit, right? Well, I was going to say, it's going to be interesting this weekend, because uh, in particular this weekend, because Formula E is going to be in Monaco for the first yeah. time. Wow. And it's going to be racing on the same track as Formula One has raced for eons. And so for the first time, you're going to be able to have a comparison between speed, daring do, and excitement. And uh, so that in itself is going to be pretty interesting. Okay, okay, I love it. We just got one minute left here, Norris. Yeah. Like, uh, what you mentioned that, you know, what about the drivers? I mean, are these highly skilled drivers? Do a lot of them come from, like, a, a traditional racing background? Oh, we just got 30 absolutely. seconds. Absolutely. In yeah. fact, some of them, some of the, uh, some of the manufacturers, Mercedes, for example, uh, they've got drivers that either have gone on from Formula One and aren't ready to, you know, to retire yet, yeah. but still have a ton of talent. Or they're young guys on the way up that the manufacturers have placed there before maybe maybe uh, moving them on to Formula Two or Formula One. Okay. So there's nothing there's nothing non professional. There's nothing amateur about Formula E racing. Okay. And you've, as I say, the proof is in the pudding, Mike. You you've sold me. Love it. You've sold me, Norris. Thanks a lot for coming on today to talk about it. Appreciate it a lot. Hey, it's a pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the bombshell divorce announcement this week. Bill and Melinda Gates announcing Monday that they are divorcing, but after 27 years of marriage. However, they say they will continue to work together at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is one of the largest charitable foundations in the world. Bill Gates, of course, uh, was the richest person on the planet. It's fallen down that list a little bit, but... Not to worry, the couple still has over $100 billion. Wow, that's a lot of money. How are they going to separate those assets? This is fascinating. Have a listen to this here now. I think this is kind of a surprising announcement. They seem like a, a happy couple. Uh, here's Melinda Gates here uh, talking about Bill uh, driving their daughter to school. 
Some other moms kind of sidled up to me and they said, hey, do you see what's changing in the classroom? And I said, yeah, I'm seeing more dads kind of dropping off. They're like, yeah, we went home and we told our husbands, if Bill Gates, who's the CEO right now, can drive his kid to school, so can you. And so I hadn't even realized that this this moment that Bill and I had at home of negotiating who was going to do what and me naming what was going to be hard and what was needed and Bill stepping up and saying, I'll do it two days a week. We inadvertently role modeled for other families something that was right. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, uh, Rebecca Zung. Rebecca is a lawyer. She's one of the uh, go-to experts on celebrity divorces. She's very popular on YouTube with more than 100,000 followers there. She's the author of uh, several best-selling books, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Rebecca, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. It's our pleasure to have you here. Did this one surprise you? I mean, you've seen a lot of celebrity div- uh, couples break up, but man, this couple, 27 years, uh, they seem to work really well together. It kind of surprised me, surprised a lot of people when they announced that they were uh, calling it quits. It did surprise me, but then on the other hand, you know, you never really know what goes on behind closed doors. I mean, just having done this work for so long, I've seen couples that I thought seemed really happy. And then, you know, they ended up, uh, one of them ended up in my office. So you just never know what goes on behind closed doors, you know? Right. Okay. So this is a, a fascinating one that going forward here now, there was no prenup, right? They did not have a prenuptial agreement. I don't know. I haven't heard that, but, you know, if they didn't have a prenuptial agreement, then, um, you know, she's going to be getting a lot of money. Yeah, okay, and this is a, a massive fortune here for sure, and I guess there are some some details emerging in some of the legal filings that have been that have come out so far, including that the assets are to be divided in a, a separation contract. What, what, is, what does that mean, a separation contract? means that there'll be uh, a marital settlement agreement of some sort that they will, uh, you know, put every, they will memorialize whatever agreements they have with regard to their assets in that contract. A marital settlement agreement is simply a contract. And then the final judgment of dissolution of marriage will likely incorporate that contract. My guess is that what they are going to do uh, because I've had to do this when I've had prof- high-profile clients myself, is they won't file the actual agreement so that, you know, the public won't be able to see that. They'll just reference it in the final judgment, and the right. actual agreement will be held maybe at their attorney's offices or something like that. Okay. Taking a look at some of the uh, the other legal filings here, the court documents state that the Gates, the Gates tell the court here that their marriage was irretrievably broken according to the the language here now i've heard about irreconcilable differences in uh, in divorce pleadings but what does that mean irretrievably broken that's just the terminology that's needed to be used for um you know no fault states um mm-hmm. some some no fault states use irretrievably broken some use irreconcilable differences it really means the same thing it's basically the language that you need to use in order to get a divorce. Right. Okay. So taking a look at their their massive uh, wealth here, the assets that they own together, I think it's over a hundred and thirty odd billion dollars. Would she be in line to get like precisely half of that? Do you think? 
It really depends on how much of that was accumulated during the marriage. Um, Because obviously he had something prior to the marriage. So in a community property state, you're going to look at what was accumulated to the community, meaning the marital estate during the marriage. So um, it really just depends. And, And they'll also take a look at, you know, whatever appreciation there was on the the assets that he had prior to the marriage as well, and he'll likely be able to carve that off. Right. Okay, speaking of divorce lawyer Rebecca Zung, you mentioned that uh, they live in a community property state. What does that mean? Well, there's really mostly two kinds of states, which is community property or an equitable distribution, and community property is much more, um, you know, it's like basically everything is 50-50, uh, that if it was accumulated during the marriage. In an equitable distribution state, you start with the presumption of 50-50, but then you can take a look at reasons why there may be an unequal distribution of the assets based on, you know, the facts of the case. But even in a community property state, you can look at ways to carve off certain assets as not being part of the quote-unquote community Right. Okay, Melinda Gates, uh, in some of the court filings, it also said that spousal support is not needed. And I wonder, does that, does that make sense to you? I mean, they have three children, but all their, all their children are grown. They're all, you know, they don't have any children under the age of 18. So is that why, is that why it would say that spousal support is not required? No, child support okay. is separate from spousal support. Okay. Um, so spousal support, the reason why, so in any divorce, there are five main areas of divorce and every single, and it, there's an order to them because each one affects the, the next one. So the, that community property division that we were just talking about, that would be the first thing that would be considered, then spousal support, then custody if there, that's an issue, but it, obviously it's not here but then child support and, and attorney fees. Those are the main areas. And the reason why the property division comes before the spousal support is because a lot of times there's going to be enough passive income on the assets that are received as part of the property division that the, uh, the spouse that might have needed support will no longer have a need for it because her needs will be met through the passive income off of the assets. Right. Okay, what about the kids here? They uh, they put out a, identical statements this week, Bill and Melinda Gates, noting that they had raised three incredible children. And divorce, I think, is is tough on kids, no matter how old the kids are. But would would the children? How would they be affected by this? And in terms of like any inheritance they might be in, in line to get, or or would that be considered in any kind of uh, division of assets here? No, that won't be considered in any. Yeah you know, division of assets, unless there's some sort of irrevocable trusts that have been set up for the children, then those would be carved off for the children. But as far as, you know, what inheritances they'll receive, it'll really just be up to each parent at that point to create their new estate plan. I mean, after the divorce is done, they will need to update their estate plan. And um, more than likely, you know, the, the assets would go to their children now instead of to each other. Um, so, you know, it probably might fare better for the children uh, in, that, in that regard. Right. Last question for you, Rebecca. They both work together at one of the largest uh, charitable foundations on the planet. 
with their uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They say they continue to work together on that foundation. How do you think that factors into a, a complex divorce proceedings like this? I think it fares well. I mean, because that means that there's a spirit of negotiation, a spirit of resolution, a spirit of wanting to have a relationship afterwards. And, you know, the bottom line is, in addition to the foundation, they've got three children who, even though they're basically grown, they're still going to have to see each other at events going forward. I mean, there'll be marriages, there'll be grandchildren, there'll be graduations, you know, things that take place where they're still going to have to be in each other's space. So it's good. It's a good sign that there's a spirit there that they want to be able to work together and come to a resolution. All right, Rebecca, it's great to get your insight and thoughts on it today. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me.